A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now we're all going to have a lot of memories of this past 12 months, this pandemic and memory and how they are made and how they make us is the subject of this episode. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. First, a quick reminder that we are planning a really special evening to mark International Women's Day. It's happening on March 4th at 8pm, a live event on Zoom and you are all invited. We're going to be talking about overcoming challenges that we faced and how we've got through them. It's an evening of storytelling. And if you want to find out how to get involved, just check our social media at IT Women's Podcast on Twitter or Instagram or check the Eventbrite link on the description in this podcast. We will have a number of special guests telling their stories of overcoming. But if you feel brave enough, we'd like to hear your stories too. So if you've got one to tell of getting through a difficult time, whether it's a tricky work situation or a challenge in your personal life, email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and tell us about that. Now, Veronica O'Keane is a professor of psychiatry and practising consultant psychiatrist at Trinity College Dublin, where she leads a research programme in depression. She has expertise in the diagnosis, treatment of postpartum psychosis and depressive illness. She's also a public commentator, a mother of two and a passionate open sea swimmer. The Rag and Bone Shop is her first book and it's been inspired by a lifetime of practice in the field that has led to her own understanding of memory. It's a breathtakingly original exploration of how our brain makes and reshapes our memories and thereby our lives. O'Keen illuminates how from birth to old age, what we experience sculpts our memory, which in turn sculpts what we know and feel and how we share this through a collective memory held in our literature and in our storytelling. I had a fascinating conversation with Veronica about all of this. And here she is, Veronica O'Keen. Veronica, this book had been germinating in you for 37 years. So will you <laughs> will you tell us about the incident in your past practice that sparked the first real interest in memory, how we keep memories and what they do to us over the course of our lives? I will do that. I'll search my memory and I'll uh, tell your listeners that. Basically, I was working, I worked for five years as a perinatal psychiatrist in London in a perinatal unit that was a national unit, a tertiary referral centre. And I mostly treated women who are either severely depressed or psychotic during pregnancy or who had what's called a postpartum psychosis which is a rare disorder, but not as rare as um, the lack of information would reflect on the disorder. And a woman uh, attended there whom I call Edith in the book. And Edith was a woman who had no previous history, no family history of psychiatric disorder. And she became psychotic in the days following the birth of her baby. Um, she behaved in a way that she'd never behaved before. She was 
bewildered, um, not communicating verbally, behaving in strange ways and ignoring the baby. And her husband knew there was something radically wrong and she was brought to the GP and following that she was sectioned, which is the same as being detained or treated involuntarily in our hospital. Now, on the way to the hospital, she passed a graveyard and she saw that there was a small old gravestone that was slightly tilted. And on looking at that, she realised in her psychotic reasoning that that was where her actual baby was buried. And it was tilted because it had been recently dug. And she firmly believed that her baby was actually a changeling. So it looked exactly like her baby, but it actually wasn't. And she believed her husband uh, was an identical to her real husband, but again was a replacement. That's called Capgras syndrome. And it happened sometimes in postpartum psychosis. And we became so used to women having these experiences that we realised they would think that we were imposters. So I would often begin by saying, I know you feel this isn't real and you feel this, but I just want to reassure you you're ill and so on and so forth. Anyway, Edith um, got better and she um, was reunited with her husband and then her baby. And uh, she was discharged from hospital and, you know, we had long discussions about the fact that she had been psychotic, these experiences weren't real and so on and so forth. And she was a very bright woman, understood all this. But the interesting uh, incident that occurred, all of it is interesting, of course, <laughs> um, but the one that triggered my um, travels into memory was on the way back to hospital to see me, um, she happened to pass by the same graveyard that she'd passed by on the way to hospital, obviously, same route. And she looked in and she saw the uh, headstone was slightly tilted again and it struck her. And because it was small, the baby and the whole range of experiences that she had experienced on the way into hospital came back to her with a terribly vivid force as if she was back at that particular time. Now, if when I said to Edith then, as psychiatrists do, well, you did realise on the second occasion that this was a delusional experience and you knew it wasn't true. And she said then to me, yes, but the memories are real. And she just put it in a very vivid experiential way. And that really jolted me from my academic interpretation and my pathological interpretations of memory that I'd been taught in medical school, in neurology and in psychiatry and brought me back to uh, the whole idea of experiencing memory and, and the idea that we are but our memories. There isn't anything else for us to rely on. So if we see something through sensation, what that actually flares in our brains is a whole pattern of lattices that involve all our senses and the everything we lay down in memory is very, very real for us. It exists in our neural network as embodied experience in our brains. So Edith, uh, really, it was a ground crushing moment for me. And um, I find that the insights that I've gained 
really. Um, they come from patience. They come from experience. And that is one of the central themes of the book, really, is the experience of memory. Mm. It's a huge question I'm going to ask you now, but I fully uh, I fully am confident that you'll be able to give us a succinct and accessible answer because you're, I have to say your book is beautifully written, Veronica, apart from everything else. And um, I wouldn't be very science inclined, but I found it very accessible and um, just fascinating, really. But what I wanted to ask you was, what are the things we need to understand um, in terms of how memories are made and formed? What is going on when that's... When we're because people talk about, oh, we're going to make some memories and we're always on our phones now taking pictures of everything because we need to remember everything. How are they formed? What happens in our brain? OK, well, that's that is a very broad question. <laughs> as you said, and thank you for reading the book. And that's exactly what I wanted to do was to make neuroscience in a rudimentary form available to people who didn't have that background, because most of us don't, because the age of the brain is very, very young indeed. It was the first decade of the 21st century, really. And the what I've written about in the book isn't really available even for psychiatric practice. Um, so that's good to know. Um, in terms, and the second part of your question, which is about what we remember, um, I'll come to that um, after I give a very brief explanation of how we remember. And how we remember basically is through sensation. Our brains grow through sensation. So whatever you have been given in the form of knowledge, written, oral, visual learning, and that is what makes up your brain. Your brain is made up of patterns of interconnecting neurons and we're born with too many connections, sort of counterintuitively, really, because we probably have a view of the brain as growing and connections forming, but everything is connected in the beginning. And the point of learning really is to make specific connections um, between the neurons and cut off other ones, which we do during adolescence, we prune. But basically the process of pruning starts at birth. And that's why babies are so oversensitized to sensation and we need to contain them and we need to try and um, narrow what they're learning. So we teach them colours and so on and so forth. So the period of infancy is characterised by sensory learning and uh, quite abstract or, or quite, sorry, concrete learning. And then, of course, as the brain develops and becomes more connected and more discriminating, because it's a process of discrimination, then we move on to putting this all together in the form of a short cut and really, that's what abstract thinking is. Abstract thinking is the shortcuts that we make in all of this memory so that we can come to conclusions quickly rather than wasting our time going through a whole series of events that we've already learned in childhood. So you can see already that what we are going to attend to in when our brains developed is, fa is the foundations that we've learned during childhood. And that is why childhood memories are so fundamentally important. Um, memories, uh, particularly emotional memories, and what we attend to. And what we attend to is what emotionally arouses us. Because our neurons can't remember everything. They have to attend to some things. Otherwise, our brains would be overloaded. So the things that we attend to 
are determined by our emotions and by our level of arousal. It could be intellectual arousal as well. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I passionately follow certain scientific questions and, you know, emotional questions in psychiatry as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be our, um, our emotions. We are aroused by things that make us curious. We are aroused by things that have traumatized us and made us happy. And so we're all an individual stamp, uh, like a footprint or, or like, no, more like a fingerprint of the experience and the knowledge that we have. I'm just listening to you there. I'm a terrible one for not remembering much. Like I don't have very early memories, whereas my partner can says he can remember being in his cot, like remembers, uh, you know, lying there and, and thinking to himself, I'll be quiet now because they like me better when I'm quiet like I think that's kind of bizarre that's why he's kind of quite <laughs> quiet now that's what we could do a whole other podcast on that and the trauma of 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 silencing yourself as an infant but I don't really remember much you know like do people have different capacity for memory do you know I'm always as in, yeah. I- intrigued by that you meet different people and they can remember so many details other people don't remember much what's going on there well Roisin I'm in your camp I seem to have no <laughs> memories until I was about three and my sister is like your partner. <laughs> and um, but but basically, our, of course, we all have completely different brains. And you can imagine, um, you know, if you've, uh, you know, there's an in- infinite number of connections that be- that can be made between all our neurons, 68 million neurons and 15,000 dendritic connections per neuron. So, of course, we have to be very individually um, sculpted in terms of our brain dendritic um, connectivity. Um, but the, the hippocampus, which is a centre in the brain where we make our memories, and basically the hippocampus is the curled in part of your brain where your sensory cortex um, curls in and all of the sensory information comes in there and our hippocampus is like a little machine that's working away madly all the time, forming new connections and building them importantly onto old ones. So that is only forming during um, late pregnancy and uh, during um, early infancy. But importantly, um, more importantly, even than the memory factory, is we can't make memories until we have a sense of ourselves. And that comes during infancy. And the infant is born believing that they are one with the mother. They don't really understand that they're a separate person in the world with even a rudimentary sense of consciousness. They feel, obviously, and they sense and they learn, but they don't have a sense of I as separate from mom or dad and um, parent. And um, but at about the age of um, 18 months, they begin to realize that their mom or their parent is not them. And that's when separation anxiety starts. So and then by the age of about three. So but who's to say that your partner wasn't uh, hadn't a very mature brain? But for me, it was about the age of three. Um, I had a sudden moment and most people do have a moment if you ask them of just understanding that they're in the world in some way. For me, it was a moment of looking down 
and seeing an orange button on a cardigan that my mother had knit. And I know the button moment, as I call it. I know when that button moment was because my mum knit different coloured cardigans for us and all the stages of my childhood (laughs) are uh, marked by different cardigans. So I could actually trace back that moment. But that sense of separateness from your mother comes first and then the sense of you being somehow, in some very vague way, you comes at about the age of three. And I find it difficult to believe that we can record autobiographical memory without understanding that you are you, if you see what I mean. But we can't ever generalise about the brain. No, it doesn't seem like we can. It's such a massive subject as well. But the other thing that you say is that when we remember an event or a place, we're remembering our most recent memory of it. So we're not actually remembering the thing as it happened. We're remembering our memory of that thing. And that's why memory is such a, like, it's not to be trusted all the time necessarily. Yeah, I I mean, my view on that is memory is our record of our past. And of course, it's terribly selective because your past and my past are absolutely unique and your your brain lattices are completely different to mine as even yours will be to your siblings. Even monozygotic twins, identical twins will have different brain lattices. Um, and, and there is also, you know, genetically, we are born with certain hardwired features. Um, so and genetically, we're all unique as well. So there, there is a whole series of complications there. Um, the, the, the question about memories being modified by remembering them has to be true. Otherwise, we'd never move forward. I mean, we're always reconfiguring ourselves. It's, it's, it is what our brain does. Our brain doesn't stop working any more than our heart or our lungs. It is physiologically primed to work and the neurons will flare up and they will change over time. And if they didn't, well, we would be like, as I say, Miss Havisham, in uh, Great Expectations, we would we would find ourselves stuck in time and place and not moving forward. So we we need to constantly revisit our pasts and um, make them, uh, you know, apply them to the present. And, 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 you know, I suppose the concept of past, present and future is something that's very much created by humans because all anybody has really is the present consciousness. And that has to be modified all the time by what is happening to us, because we have to reframe ourselves all the time to develop. And, you know, I, my, uh, you know, I, I, I think a healthy brain is a brain that's as loyal as it can be to past memories, with an awareness of how things were then, but also an awareness of how things have changed, because I think that can be very, very hopeful for us. Um, not not just to be immediately consciously in the present, revising our past all the time, but we can see with the great introspective artists that they have a way of remembering moments that we can all relate to. And that's very pure 
to that moment and hasn't really been revised. Um, somebody like Proust, like Paula Meehan, who's a, a great favourite of all of ours. She's a national treasure. And poets do that in a very specific way. Or even James Joyce and Ulysses does it, you know, moment to moment to moment to to capture that sort of, of moment. I think there's a great human um, elegance to that, to our great introspective artists who do that. Um, but having said that, they are also in their present moments. They just have this fantastic capacity to remember uh, stills in their life and that conscious moment. And they bring it um, to life for for all of us. Um, Veronica, I really wanted to ask you, because just as you're speaking and also reading the book about collective memory, because the Mother and Baby Home Commission report recently has made me think about this a lot. Mm. The importance of all those memories that, as we found out, uh, the, the audio transcripts have been they've been destroyed. So that all that memory that was recorded so carefully and so, you know, you would have thought that would make an incredible um, oral history of something very important. How important do you think it is it that we have those collective memories, especially maybe of times that weren't good in order to learn from them? But also just I'm really interested in your thoughts on that whole story as it evolved recently. I think it's terribly important, Roisin, that we remember the past as it was then. It's a, it's a such, you know, Ireland is such a better place now than it was when I was growing up in the, you know, in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s. It was grim. It was unkind. It was particularly unkind to women and to children. And, you know, we're all aware of that. In a background way, but I think you're absolutely correct. And we have lost a, a wealth of deep history by losing the audio recordings because we will revise history. We will always revise history. And, um, you know, to say that there are revisionists who are historians is, um, is, is really to underestimate the fact that all historians are revisionists. You can't really record something in an, in an abstract way. But the deep history is the voices of the women and the people and the children from that time. That brings us back to how things were experienced at that time. And I don't think it's possible to explain how things were then. When, you know, when, for example, when we were approaching the marriage referendum, my children were teenagers and they were aghast that gay people couldn't get married. <laughs> they said, what? So, you know, for, for people like them who, who don't have who don't have the history embodied in their brains, um, it is very important. And that's I, th I think that's why I hark back to the introspection that our artists, whom we all relate to, um, they laid that down for us in a way that makes it all much more vivid. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think that was a crime of sorts. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's fantastic that we have people, you know, in Irish language departments, for example, who are recording the um, scales from and the way stories used to be told, the rhythm of those, We, you know, 
there there will sometime sometime probably come a day when there will only be one or two people in the country who can do that. But to have the voices of the people who lived through the spoken word and the spoken word of stories and fairy tales, you know, this is this is our deep memory. One hopeful thing. Well, there's lots of hopeful things in your book. And it's as I said, it's fascinating. But the thing about um, our brains as we age and that our brains are somehow happier as we age or that there's a hopeful thing there in that I think at one point you say older people want nothing from the world except to be in it which is lovely uh talk to us about the older brain and and people who are older and and the kind of memories that maybe come back at an older age that weren't uh surfacing before yeah it's very interesting process because and I think it really uh when we look at the brain over the different decades after adolescence and we quite no about the brain quite well during infancy and adolescence, but we're definitely less interested in the adult brain. The adult brain is kind of thrown out there as a homogenous um, thing. But of course, our brain is hugely organic and changes over time. And the interesting thing about it is that we do gain things as the brain ages, as well as losing things. And we tend to just focus on the things we lose. And just to get it out of the way, the things that we lose, in case nobody over 50 knows this, is we lose our capacity to, um, to, for, for sharp, short-term memory. So as I said in the book, everybody over the age of 55 loses their glasses, loses their keys, their mobile phones are a combination thereof. And, you know, you spend quite a lot of time. Where did I leave that down? Until you realise that you have to have places for everything. So we do lose that capacity. And young people have a tremendous capacity to, um, in terms of what we call working memory, which is keeping things in your head and juggling them up and processing them. So being clever in a very immediate way and imbibing knowledge, vast quantities of knowledge that they can move about. And then as we get older, our hippocampus, doesn't work quite as efficiently. It's the same as all of our cells in our body. <laughs> so we don't make memories quite as fast. And the hippocampus does get smaller. We can see it on scanning as we Shrinking get hippocampus. The shrinking hippocampus, yeah. A shrinking hippocampus. But the glorious thing is that is compensated for by a more elaborate prefrontal cortex. And this is where we store memories Uh, biographical memories and also a more complex cortex, which is where we process sensory information. So the the whole of the brain becomes integrated in a um, more compact way. So that that's really abstract thinking. So the shortcuts that we employ increase and we can go right through um, ideological um, stops that young people get fixated in. And um, so, you know, as you get older, you can get bored more easily because you've you've worked it all out. And you can see young people are, you know, they're, they're really immersed in ideological issues. And that's fantastic. And we need that in the world. But then as you get older, you, you, you sort of have things like that worked out. You've got shortcuts. You've got more. Uh, you've got you've got a, a bigger view. Um, you've got a more bird's eye view, a zoomed out view. And the zoomed out view, I think, is is very important in society. The wisdom of old age. And I suppose essentially that's what it is. And um, I've, I think I have certainly gained in 
contentment in my sort of consciousness of other people and in my sensory appreciation of the world. So you're less engaged in your hippocampus spinning memories and more engaged in putting it all together in a pattern that involves other people as well. So it's a quite, kind of a more zoomed out form of consciousness. Mm. And maybe maybe we, uh, you know, we, we want our leaders to have young brains in a way, don't we, I think. And we we want them to um, to to be able to process information very quickly, but I I think actually the um, the more zoomed out inclusive form of consciousness is terribly important, and in a way we miss that um, we miss that certainly in the financial world, which tends to focus really um, on a you know it's a very narcissistic highly processed um, sort of world. Veronica, I think we're all a bit zoomed out of it now in this pandemic, and I'm just wondering, literally (laughs) zoomed out of it. I'm just wondering about your thoughts on this time that many, many people are going to maybe want to forget, who who won't want to remember this painful time of being locked down, of, you know, being isolated in many cases and, and, you know, watching as, as our fellow countrymen and women are in the hospital and all of those kind of things. Have you had any thoughts about memory in these times, in in, in times when something is very un, unusual is happening, a prolonged, because so, it's been a year of it now nearly. Um, what do you think about how, our memories that we're making at this time? Um, I, I think it's going to be very variable. Some people have lost loved ones. And I uh, heard a woman actually um, this morning talking on the radio who lost her husband and a sibling and they didn't have the chance to celebrate their lives um, or to mourn their passing. And I thought, like, that is going to be her memory. Um, My memories are actually not as bad, even though I was, you know, in in frontline medical staff and it was very scary for the first two months. So I think anybody who's in frontline staff will remember March and April 2020 as being very anxiety provoking. Nobody knew what was happening and there was no vaccine. It was, uh, you know, unpredictable illness. Um, So um, I think for the vast majority of people, uh, it it was with young families was extremely stressful. (laughs) You know, uh, certainly healthcare workers were meant to look after their children and come into work. And there was no schooling, you know, so we did that very badly, I think. Um, Being a working parent and, you know, a working father or mother, a working parent is difficult anyway. Um, Because you're, you know, you're you're kind of, you're bilocating in your brain the whole time. Both issues are always on your mind. But if they're both together in the same place, um, you know, it's immensely difficult. So, but then I think... I think there's a kind of blandness about it now, a weariness, a sameness. And I'm not sure people, I think with without some sensation that's particularly illuminating or new or novel or that will light up our brain, I think, I think the last few months is going to pass in a sort of a blur for people. And I, I have that Especially if they've myself. been at the gin like I have. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think the beginning will be lit up. 
I, I think a lot, a lot of single people, I have huge sympathy for them who live alone. I can't, uh, you know, I can't imagine how that sort of loneliness, I, I think they will have very bleak memories. And you just, know. Veronica, apart from your this specific memory aspect of, of your work, what are you finding in terms of um, how people are suffering with their mental health at the moment? Because it's something we hear a lot about, but obviously you're there at the front line of all of that. What do you think, is this going to be years before we maybe see the effects of, of what this has done on some people? Oh, absolutely. I mean, particularly on people who are making their foundational memories. I cannot think of what it's doing to infants, children. I mean, the younger they are, the more susceptible they are. I mean, there have been babies born who have had virtually no contact with other babies, um, with their grandparents. I mean, it's it's all visual contact. It's not tactile. You know, they're being warned against touching things. Their parents aren't touching other people. I don't know. And nobody can know the effect of that. It's like this mass experiment that we've all been inadvertently and unwantedly thrown into. Um, for, um, for adults, there's been a time of increased anxiety. And I think everybody really has become more aware of their mental health and what they need to do to manage their own mental health. And, you know, ultimately, all of the techniques come back to a sort of mindfulness, you know, the, the Eastern techniques of focusing on yourself, introspection, trying to calm yourself, trying to self-soothe, trying to be mindful, aware of what's happening in you and trying to appreciate the limited sensory world that you have access to, like gardening um, you know, I'm very lucky. I live five minutes from the sea and there's been an explosion of sea swimmers, which has made social distancing actually quite difficult on my beach. Um, so it's, you know, I, I, I think people have learned to manage their anxiety better, to be a little bit more mindful um, if they've successfully managed COVID. But there are people who haven't done that and who will certainly need psychotherapy and help. And unfortunately, the only therapy that's available is online, which is difficult if you're feeling anxious because of social isolation. There are people, of course, whose tendencies to self-isolate and um, to um, try and ignore issues. Of course, it has heightened these um self-defeating traits. There's a whole range of issues that will be individual that people won't be able to cope with and that are going to impact on their mental health. And I think we really need a new tier of mental health to help people who have these milder forms of of, um, mental mental health problems. I mean, in our job, we deal with people who have serious mental illness and who have clinical, clinically diagnosed problems. And of course, an awful lot more people are reaching the level of clinical um, diagnosis. Um, you know, a, a lot of milder mental health has been pushed up into a diagnostic category and we're dealing with that. But I do think that in terms of planning for the future, in, in terms of health, the government in their post-COVID clinics um, that there are no psychology services, there are no counselling services, and that's a, a gap that I 
hope will be identified and addressed. Um, interestingly, our patients with major mental illness, with psychotic disorders, have actually managed to cope very well. And that has really taught me a lot about how much they have to deal with anyway. I mean, they are isolated. They are stigmatized. And in a way, I think uh, they don't feel unduly, not to the same extent as a lot of us do, which is a great tribute to um, the adversity that they endure on a day-to-day basis. Well, I wanted to finish by just reading a little bit from your book, because as I say, it's really beautifully written and, and you it's not a memoir. It's not there, but there are snippets of the personal. And you mentioned your sea swimming there. And at, in the last page, you have a lovely moment when you talk about having finished writing the book. And um, you say the sea shadowed by the cliff in our north facing swimming bay in Hoth was spared the algae bloom at the cost of the chill. Following a swim to the far boy, I would often spread myself out on the stones, warmed by the heat, and feel the prescient memories being fired by whatever it was that made the happiness come together that summer. I swam in the sea and I swam in memory. And I suppose that's what we're all doing as we live our lives, isn't it? Swimming in in memory, but it's a lovely way to put it. Yes, I, I, I find myself, that is my way of being in the world. I kind of, I swim. <laughs> Even when I'm out of the sea, and um, yeah, I I think I think swimming does put you into a trans uh, a transcendental um, form of consciousness that's very um, renewing and you know really reboots our systems. Roisin, <laughs> do you see swim? Well, I don't, but I do love it. If I ever, whenever I do it, which yeah. is very much like when I'm on holidays and I'm looking forward to a holiday, hopefully in La Hinch later this year. And when I'm in the sea, there is no better place. But I'm just very, very bad at getting myself into it at uh, at random times. And I'm not I'm not like you, Veronica, where you seem to be just able to hop up and get out there and into the water. It takes a bit more. I couldn't do it when I had a young family like oh, you. Yeah. So it's something to look forward to in the future. That's lovely to think about. And I do know I do. I, I totally understand what you mean about the transcendental thing of it. There's something very different about it. And I mean, without getting too corny, but there's there's something very childlike about it too. I think just going back into that space where the water's holding you up and there is nothing else, um, it can kind of, yeah, there's nothing better than just lying in your back in the sea, I think, and, and yes. drifting off. Um, it's been really fascinating talking to you, I have to say. Um, before you go, have you any advice for people who want to make better memories? Because I mentioned at the very beginning us all being obsessed with taking photos and we think if we take a photo, then we've almost created the memory and we don't have to worry about it then. We're sort of not doing the work in our brains, perhaps. But I suppose it comes down to mindfulness, um, just being aware of the moments and being aware of them in a bigger way. Does that keep them um, logged in better, if for want of a better expression? Do we record them better by by um, trying to use our awareness in a, in a stronger way? Yeah, I don't understand the generation of people who've been brought up snapping every moment. And I'm not really sure how all that is going to pan out in the future. But certainly for me, going back over photographs, which you wouldn't take every five minutes, they do bring me back um, to the time and I almost feel myself being in that time when I look at some photographs. 
But the indiscriminate nature of trying to make memories now, I'm not sure how that will pan out. I, I think it'll be not all that dissimilar, that there will be certain moments that your brain will choose to make that memory, that one particular men- memory in your brain. And as you get older, your, your, brain's, your brain becomes more like snap, snapshot memories. Um, you know, when you think back to your childhood or, a, you know, a decade in your childhood, you, you don't have a hundred memories of it. You have a few memories. So something about what you are, about how you develop emotionally, about your rag and bone shop of your heart, it, it almost picks the memories, I think, in some sort of way that is uniquely the mystery of you and of your brain. So I would imagine, even with this frantic effort to uh, record everything, um, I still think moments will remain. Well, that's a lovely way to end. And you mentioned the rag and bone name of the book. And of course, that comes from the WB8's uh, poem, uh, Circus Animals Desertion. And you, you're not looking at the rag and bone shop of the heart. You're looking at the rag and bone shop of the brain. But it's it's a really poetic, nice. And there's lots of lovely literary references in the book, too. Um, but thank you very much for writing it. And thanks for coming on and talking to us so eloquently about our brains and the amazing place that is there that we sometimes take for granted, I think, and forget about. That's right. Thank you very much, Roisin. It's been very enjoyable. Thanks so much to Veronica Keane. And their book is called The Rag and Bone Shop. And it really is fascinating. I learned a lot. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Do get in touch about our Women's Day event, the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. You can email us there for more details. It's on March 4th. And keep in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. We also have season three of The Big Night In coming up too. And you can find out all about that on irishtimes.com forward slash big night in. That's it for me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.